the house was quiet. I grabbed my black medical bag, scuffed and worn from years of use. The night air was like a cool sauna, and there were no lights in the windows of my neighbors' houses. As I backed the Navy station wagon out of the drive, I looked at the light burning over the porch, at the first-story window leading into the guest bedroom where my ten-year-old niece, Lucy, was asleep. This would be one more day in the child's life I would miss. I had picked her up at the airport Wednesday night. Our meals together, so far, had been few. There was no traffic until I hit the parkway. Minutes later, I was speeding across the James River. Taillights far ahead were rubies, the downtown skyline ghostly in the rearview mirror. Fanning out on either side were planes of darkness with tiny necklaces of smudged light at the edges. Out there, somewhere, is a man, I thought. He could be anybody, walks upright, sleeps with a roof over his head, and has the usual number of fingers and toes. He is probably white and much younger than my forty years. He is ordinary by most standards and probably doesn't drive a BMW or grace the bars in the slip or the finer clothing stores along Main Street. But then again, he could. He could be anybody, and he was nobody. Mr. Nobody, the kind of guy you don't remember after riding up twenty floors alone with him inside an elevator. He had become the self-appointed dark ruler of the city, an obsession for thousands of people he had never seen, and an obsession of mine, Mr. Nobody. Because the homicides began two months ago, he may have been recently released from prison or a mental hospital. This was the speculation last week, but the theories were constantly changing. Mine had remained the same from the start. I strongly suspected he hadn't been in the city long. He'd done this before somewhere else, and he'd never spent a day behind the locked doors of a prison or a forensic unit. He wasn't disorganized, wasn't an amateur, and he most assuredly wasn't crazy. Wilshire was two lights down on the left, Berkeley the first right after that. I could see the blue and red lights flashing two blocks away. The street in front of 5602 Berkeley was lit up like a disaster site. An ambulance, its engine rumbling loudly, was alongside two unmarked police units with grill lights flashing and three white cruisers with light bars going full tilt. The Channel 12 news crew had just pulled up. Lights had blinked on up and down the street, and several people in pajamas and housecoats had wandered out to their porches. I parked behind the news van as a cameraman trotted across the street, head bent, the collar of my khaki raincoat turned up around my ears, I briskly followed the brick wall to the front door. I have always had a special distaste for seeing myself in the evening news. Since the stranglings in Richmond began, my office had been inundated, the same reporters calling over and over again with the same insensitive questions. 
If it's a serial killer, Dr. Scarpetta, doesn't that indicate it's quite likely to happen again? As if they wanted it to happen again. Is it true you found bite marks on the last victim, Doc? It wasn't true. But no matter how I answered such a question, I couldn't win. No comment, and they assume it's true. No, and the next edition reads, Dr. K. Scarpetta denies that bite marks have been found on the victims' bodies. The killer, who's reading the papers like everybody else, gets a new idea. Recent news accounts were florid and frighteningly detailed. They went far beyond serving the useful purpose of warning the city's citizens. Women, particularly those who lived alone, were terrified. The sale of handguns and deadbolt locks went up 50% the week after the third murder. And the SPCA ran out of dogs. A phenomenon.